found a Martin Luther quote that I think really introduces our passage in our sermon for us this morning. Martin Luther said, when God is about to justify a man, he damns him. Whom he would make alive, he must first kill. Man must first cry out that there is no health in him. He must be consumed with horror. When a man believes himself to be utterly lost, light breaks. When a man believes himself to be utterly lost, light breaks. That's a commentary on Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. I hope you're there in your Bible. Let me give you this a subject in one word. This is a great challenge for a preacher each week. Can he pick one word to give the subject of his text? And the one word for this passage <clears throat> is deliverance. A.K.A. rescue or salvation. Okay, three words, but you get the, you get the point. You could pick any of those and it would be right. But what kind of deliverance, what kind of rescue is described here? What kind of salvation is described here? So now the passage in two words. Divine deliverance. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 is about a divine rescue, a sovereign salvation. And that brings us to the text idea. Paul writing from prison. This is a prison epistle. Paul writing from prison joyfully explained why God single-handedly delivered the Ephesian believers and himself from spiritual death and eternal wrath. That's the idea of this text. Brings us to the sermon idea this morning. This text joyfully explains why God single-handedly saves sinners from spiritual death and eternal wrath. The tone is one of joy and worship and exaltation of our triune God. Let me say the sermon idea one more time. This text joyfully explains why God single-handedly saves sinners from spiritual death and eternal wrath. My title is The Single-Handed Divine Deliverance of the Walking Dead. The burden of this text, I've already read it. I won't read it in full again. We'll read it in pieces as we go along. But the burden of this text or the question that this text answers is the why question. It's very plainly the why question. Why does God save sinners? And more particularly, why does he save sinners single-handedly? Why does God save sinners without our contribution? <clears throat> Why does God save sinners without our help? That's the burden of this text. So in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, we find four reasons why God single-handedly saves sinners. <clears throat> I also can't imagine a better text to prepare our hearts and minds for the Lord's table at the end of the sermon. So, reason number one is verses one to three. Because a single-handed salvation is the only way. Why does God save sinners in a single-handed fashion? Because this is the only way it can happen. Look at verses one to three. Paul is writing here from prison to the church at Ephesus, to believers. He's writing to Christians. This is not an evangelistic passage. This is a set of truths that he is reminding and explaining to believers. And he says to them, and you were dead 
in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And you notice you, you, you. In verse 3, it changes to we. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So here we have the first reason implied for us why this salvation must be wrought by God and with no contribution from us. It's simply because we can't make a contribution. There's no other way for salvation to happen because of our condition, because of our status here. So well explained in these three verses. In fact, this may be the best passage in all of the Bible to explain the complete corruption of man or the total depravity of the sinner. It's basically all here. Look at this. You were dead. He means spiritually dead. No responsiveness to God whatsoever. Physically alive, but spiritually dead. Separated from the life of God in your soul. Uh, Cut off from Him. Uh, In in a state of inability to move one inch toward God. To respond to any stimuli whatsoever. Dead is dead. A person in a coffin cannot respond to any stimuli. Wave their best food, their favorite food before them. You will get nothing. Bring their spouse to them and there will be no response. Bring their children there and there will be nothing that can happen because they are dead. And that's where we were spiritually. We were in a spiritual coffin. We were in a spiritual grave. We were hopeless and we were helpless. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. So you weren't inactively dead. You were very active. It was a deadness in sins and transgressions and breaking the law of God. God had said this you can do and this you should not do. He's put that in our hearts and in our conscience and in our lostness. We were living in a in a state of sinful rebellion against God. And so this deadness is both a a passive thing, we're unable, but it's also an active thing, we're rebellious. We're We're in the pursuit of sin in this lost state. Paul goes on to describe it in verse 2, in which you formerly walked. And notice that former. He's writing to Christians. This is not true of them any longer. Christians do not live in sin. Christians do not wallow in sin continuously. There's been a break. He said you formerly lived this way. You formerly walked according to the course of this world. The cosmos. The fallen, rebellious world. And so he said, while you were lost in your state, while you were dead in your sins and your trespasses, you walked according to or on the basis of the world. You live like the world. You embrace the world. You love the world. You stood for the world. This was the lost condition we were in as believers. This is the lost condition every unsaved person is in right now. They live their life according to the path of this fallen world. A world that is is in in rebellion against God. A world that hates God and hates His truth. But he goes on because it's even worse than that. He says, according to the prince of the power of the air. And now this is a reference to Satan himself. Here's a reference to the devil. So when we were lost, we lived and we walked according to and under the power of Satan himself. He controlled our lives. Even if we denied his existence, he controlled our lives. 
He had blinded us to the gospel. He had deceived us to believe that lies were truth and truth were lies. He caused us to have no regard for Christ and no love for the holiness of God. We were under the reign and the rule of the enemy of God. And we walked according to this prince. The Bible says that the whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one. And we lie, we were there. He rules this world. He is the God, little g, of this world. He is behind every corrupt and deceptive system and institution of man in this world. He's very real and he's very active. But let's not say he's well. He's far from well. He is a miserable creature. A miserable, fallen, unredeemable creature who is in absolute, utter hatred against God and against man and against Christ. He's described further in verse 2 as the spirit. He's a spiritual being. He's a fallen angel. He is a spirit that is now this very moment, this very moment, he is working, energizing, motivating the sons of disobedience. That's just the description of an unsaved person. You're an offspring of disobedience. Uh, You're a son or daughter of breaking God's law. And so Paul here is primarily thinking of the Gentile Christians there in Ephesus as he writes verses 1 and 2. As he describes this condition and this destiny. But then in verse 3 he does something very surprising. He includes himself. Paul, the former Pharisee. This moral, upstanding, law-keeping Paul now includes himself in verse 3. Among them, we too. This is shocking, isn't it? If you're a Gentile listener to this and a Gentile reader in that early church, and you know Paul and you know his background, this is incredible that he would put himself in the same boat, in the same condition. He says, we too all, again, formerly, formerly, Lived in the lusts of our flesh, in the cravings of our flesh, in the passionate, strong desires of our fallen flesh. He said, we, we lived there. We loved it there. We pursued it and went after it. These strong cravings and these envious yearnings. And he says our life was one of indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Our mind would see something. Our mind would consider something. It would evaluate it. It would then approve it to the will of our flesh. And then our will would move out toward it. And that is the state of every lost person in this world. Verses 1, 2, and 3, no matter what it looks like in behavior, is describing Every single unregenerate lost person in this world. They are living in the lust of their flesh. They are indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And they are by nature, by nature, from conception forward, children of wrath, even as the rest. And Paul says, I was right there. Even though he was a Pharisee, even though he went to church every week, even though he kept God's law externally, even though he looked good on the outside to everybody else, people would look at Paul and say, wow, that is an upstanding person. Even though that was the case, Paul says, I was a child of wrath, even as the rest of mankind. And so you really have here in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, you have Romans 1, 2, and 3 condensed into three verses. 
commentary on the guilt of Gentiles, the guilt of Jews, the guilt of all mankind. There's some interesting verses that support what Paul's talking about here. So you noticed our three big uh, opponents here in this passage. Did you notice it? The world. What else? The flesh. And what else? The devil. They're all three right here, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil. So let's listen to what the Bible says about these three. In James 4, 4, he says that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. If you are a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. And 2 Timothy 2.26 says that the lost are in the snare of the devil held captive by him to do his will. And Romans 7.18 says that there is nothing good that dwells in me that is in my flesh. So if I love the world, I'm an enemy of God. I'm held captive by the devil. And in my flesh, there is nothing good. Zero good. Zero good. But you may ask, why is a single-handed deliverance the only way? Why is there, or, or can you support from the Bible that we make no contribution, no contribution to our salvation? Well, let's look at a few passages to support that. Turn with me to John chapter 3. John in chapter 3. And we're just looking for some support outside of Ephesians 2 that we can't make a contribution to our salvation. John 3 verse 19. This, this is Jesus speaking. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Men love the darkness rather than the light. Verse 20, for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Well, Ephesians 2 has already told us that everyone does evil. Jesus says everyone who does evil hates the light. The unbeliever actually, no matter what they say, the unbeliever actually hates the true God. And so did you and so did I before we were saved. No matter what it might look like on the outside, when we're talking about the true God and the true Christ, our flesh actually hated him. Just as Jesus said there in John 3. Turn over to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 and verse 7 and 8. Romans 8, verse 7 and 8. Paul says, uh, because the mind set on the flesh, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Check that out. First one book over, 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14. And we're really just trying to see support here for man's utter inability in his lost condition. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Okay, you see it? Are you with me? 
I want you to see it. But a natural man, that's an unsaved person. That's a person without the supernatural presence of the Holy Spirit. That's a person in, in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 condition. That person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They do not accept the things of God, the things of the gospel, the things of the Bible, the truth uh, uh, of God and the truth of, of themselves. They don't accept it. Uh, they reject it. We could say it. They reject it. They, they oppose it. They, they keep it away from themselves. They do not accept it. Why not? For they are foolishness to him. The things of God to the natural person is utter foolishness. It's ridiculous. And look at it. He goes on though. So it's a does not. It's a does not because we will not. You see, we will not come to God left to ourselves. But it's more than that. He says further, he cannot. You see it? Am I making this up? No, it's right here. He cannot understand them. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. They are spiritually valued. They have a spiritual essence. And he doesn't have a spiritual essence because he's dead in sins. There is no alive to God. So the, the, the sinner is alive in sin but dead to God. And here it is. He does not and he cannot. He's both unwilling and unable you see, man is actually powerless to do good, true good, good that glorifies God, good that God says is good. Man in his fallen state is utterly powerless to do that. We are powerless to repent. We are powerless to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are powerless to even cooperate with the Holy Spirit. It is not in us. We are dead in our sins. But man is very powerful to do evil. And this is proven by world history and it's proven by our own history. The dead can't lift a finger to help God save them. The dead can't lend a hand. They're dead. There is no ability or propensity or the slightest, slightest inclination in the unsaved person's heart to come to Christ. In fact... Not only is there no inclination whatsoever to move one centimeter toward Christ. In fact, there is an inclination to go the opposite direction. We are not passive. We are actually rebellious against God. We are like bats. We are repelled by the light and drawn to the darkness. We are like cockroaches ever searching for sin and then scurrying away as soon as the light comes on, we hate the light. The light exposes our sin and we loved our sin. And that is the condition of every lost person. Our contribution to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. That's the only thing we contributed. Your contribution to your regeneration was the spiritual death that made it necessary. Your decision did not cause your regeneration. Your regeneration caused your decision. God is the operative, decisive cause of salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And salvation is of the Lord. It's not of us. And so in God, in His great mercy... Reaches down. Then that changes everything. Point number one. If salvation is to happen. 
God and God alone must do it. And he must do it without our help. There is no other way. Let's make a few points of application before we move to the second reason. I want to call on you this morning to reject the narrative. Reject the narrative of the culture that we're swimming around in. We are in a culture that has a narrative of blame shifting, virtue signaling, and infatuation with self-image and self-esteem and self-righteousness. We are in a culture that has redefined sin as sickness. And instead of going to the pastor, you now go to the psychologist to solve the sin problems of your life. That is the culture that we're swimming in. And we need to reject that narrative. Our culture has almost completely lost a sense of sin as sin, as moral evil against a personal God. Our culture has, has by and large become atheistic. And they have rejected the idea of sin as perversity, vanity, and treason. And at best, sin is redefined as a mistake or blamed on your parents or blamed on your upbringing. We are, we're in a culture of blame shifting, not taking personal responsibility and everything that comes with that. So we need to reject that narrative. Second point of application. I want to call on you this morning to repent, to repent, change your mind, repent of the lie that you contributed to your salvation. I want you to repent of the lie that you cooperated yourself into the new birth. I want you to repent of the lie that your decision led to your regeneration. Let me ask you this. What did you have to do with your physical birth? What did you have to do with your physical birth? Nothing. Why did Jesus use that as an illustration of salvation? Why did Jesus stand before Nicodemus, moral Nicodemus, law-keeping Nicodemus, and say, you must be born again? Because he wanted to draw a parallel to human birth. To show us that salvation is of the Lord. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it and you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Let me ask you this. What did Lazarus supply to his revived life? What did Lazarus contribute to his return to life? Nothing. He contributed a corpse that needed reviving. So we need to repent and change our mind of the false teaching and the lie that says our decision led to our regeneration. Where the truth is clearly spelled out here, regeneration led to our decision. Beloved, our hope is not self-improvement, self-help, or even cooperating with the Spirit. The gospel is not God helps those who help themselves. That is not good news. Good news is God sovereignly saves sinners who cannot save themselves. Another point of application, parents, parents. 
please do not tell your kids they can believe any time at all. Please don't tell them that. We are not in charge of our destiny. Do we believe this is the truth or not? Then it needs to filter its way out into everything we do and everything we say. Do we believe that salvation is of the Lord? That we're not in charge of our destiny and our kids are not in charge of their own destiny? We should not say to our kids or anybody for that matter, you can believe any time at all. That implies that you have the power to believe. That implies that you can do something to move toward God on your own. Listen to these verses. 1 Corinthians 1.30 But by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. John 1.13 We are born again, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I don't know how much more plain it can be. We're born again, not of our will. John 1.13 But of God. Or Romans 9, 16. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. It depends on God who has mercy. God and God alone. 100% on God who has mercy. Don't tell your kids it depends on them. That's not true. That's not the Bible. Or how about this one? John six twenty nine. Jesus said, this is the work of God. That you believe in him whom he has sent. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Or this verse, John six forty four. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. That's what you need to tell your kids. Son, daughter, you can't come to God unless God draws you. What do you tell your kids? You tell them this. If God doesn't save you, you're doomed. Kids, if God doesn't save you, you're doomed. Kids, something can be done about your condition and your destiny, but not by you. For those here this morning who are alive in sin but dead to God, you need to beg God to let you see this divine diagnosis of your true condition. Plead with God to open your eyes to the truth of Ephesians Two, one to three, in its depths and its breadth. Say, God, please show me my true condition. I don't see it. I don't own it. And I can't unless you show it to me. God, I'm hopeless. God, I'm helpless. God, show me my true condition before you. Listen, here's the truth of every unbeliever. Your behavior is not as bad as it could be, but your condition is. Your condition is as bad and as wretched and as horrible as it could possibly be. The first reason that our salvation is a single-handed salvation is because this is the only way salvation will ever happen. Will ever happen. If it is to happen. All right, number two. 
Reason number two. Because a single-handed salvation most magnifies His grace. It is this kind of salvation that most magnifies and expands God's glorious grace. Look at verse 4 to 7. Coming out of this wretched condition, this hopeless condition. Look at verse 4. What does it say? But who? God. It doesn't say but you. It doesn't say but you and God. It doesn't say but God and you. It says but God. Here's the solution. Here's the power that's necessary. Here's the grace and love that's necessary. But God, God intervened. God interrupted. But God being rich in mercy, abundant, overflowing, wealthy in pity and compassion. God, because of his great love with which he loved us. This is God the Father here being spoken of. He's a merciful God. He's a compassionate God. He's a, he's a kind God. Even verse five, even when we were dead in our transgressions, Paul wants to make sure we didn't miss it. He wants to make sure we don't miss this monergistic regeneration. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. God did it. He did it all. He resurrected us. He regenerated us. He birthed us from above. He made us alive. We were dead. He made us alive together with Christ. Paul just can't hold back. He wants to get to this so badly. By grace, you have been saved. By unmerited favor, you have been saved. By God doing something for you that you can't do for yourself, you have been saved. He goes on in verse 6, and he raised us up with him. And he seated us with him, with Christ, in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. Why? Why did he do all of this? Why did he make alive? Why did he raise up? Why did he seat us? Why? Verse 7, so that in the ages to come, ages, plural, millennial kingdom, eternal kingdom, in the ages to come, God might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's not about you. It's about God putting His grace on display for all eternity. It's about God looking into that cesspool of one to three and finding trophies of grace that would shine for Him forever and ever. Oh, it's so glorious. Look at this. There are three main actions God does in these verses. God the Father does them. The three main actions are made alive, raised up, and seated. And He did all three simultaneously for this great eternal purpose that He might display, that He might demonstrate, put on like a display case, like a trophy case. The, the surpassing, the going beyond wealth of His grace. It doesn't even make sense. It's so immense. It's beyond our comprehension. Why would God love sinners like this so powerfully? It was His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The second reason is a single-handed salvation most magnifies His grace, most glorifies His grace. It best puts it on display. Do, do you see it? Do you see that it's, that it's all God here? All the way through? 
There are two views of salvation among Christians. Among true Christians. There are two views. And I want to uh, illustrate them for you. The first view is that salvation is uh, of a person who is drowning. In the process of drowning. The flailing. They've gone under once maybe or twice. They're they're in dire straits. It's a desperate situation. They cannot save themselves. There's just no, they're drowning. They're too far out. They don't have the strength to swim all the way in. If someone doesn't rescue them, they will drown. No question about it. They're drowning. The lifeguard sees that the person is drowning and he throws out the lifeline to the drowning person. The drowning person flails over, maybe swims a bit, reaches out, grabs hold and gets a hold of the little life preserver. And then the lifeguard pulls the person in to safety. And that's a view of salvation among among some Christians. It essentially boils down to you did your part and the lifeguard did his part. And if the lifeguard hadn't done his part, you would have drowned, you would have died and you would have gone to hell. No question about it. But he threw you the lifeline and you grabbed hold and he pulled you in. Another view of salvation is not drowning. It's what? Drowned. You're dead. You've already drowned and you're on the bottom of the lake. The lifeguard dives into the murky water. He swims to the depths. He pulls your lifeless corpse out, drags you to the bank, does CPR, and brings you to life. Now, my question is, which view most glorifies the lifeguard? Two views of salvation among Christians. And I believe it is the second view that lines up with the Bible. That most accurately depicts a true work of salvation by God and God alone. And thus, most, they both glorify the lifeguard. We didn't say the first one didn't at all. They both glorify the lifeguard. And the person drowns without the lifeguard. No question. But the second view most glorifies the lifeguard. I plead with you this morning, if you never have before, Considered these things, then consider them, wrestle with them and see if these things are true throughout the scriptures. And I plead with you this morning to embrace with your heart, with your affections, to embrace sovereign grace, to embrace the doctrines of grace. And I promise you, as someone who has post his conversion, who someone who did a few years after coming to know Christ, who embrace this because I believe God opened my eyes to see it in the Bible. I believe and I can tell you right now that if you will do that, you will never be the same. (laughs) Give God all of the glory for your salvation and then hold on. There will be moments where you will feel like you have already gone to heaven. There will be moments where your joy and your appreciation of the love of God and the grace of God in your life will be so much more expansive 
so much more soul gripping, so much more motivating than anything you have tasted before. There have been people who come to these things by God's grace and they will give testimony to say it was almost like getting saved again. It was so transformative, so powerful, so heart moving. And I'm not saying Christians that don't get to this place aren't transformed and aren't moved in their hearts. I'm not saying that. I'm talking, we're talking about levels here. We're talking about something that opens up a whole new dimension of your worship and love and devotion and service to God when He gets all 100% of the glory. I believe with all of my heart that this most magnifies His grace, just as verse 7 indicates. Third reason. Third reason for a single-handed salvation. And you can see how one leads to the next, which leads to the next. I said it this way, because a single-handed salvation eliminates all grounds for human boasting. It eliminates or strips away all grounds for human Boasting because of the truth of verses one to three, we are inclined to boast. In fact, we will boast. It's just a matter of what will we boast in. We are wired to to brag, to praise, to exalt, to to magnify. This method, this design of salvation by design eliminates all grounds for human boasting. Verses eight and nine, the most familiar verses of this passage. Paul is now explaining this salvation even further. That's what the word for there means in verse 8. For by grace, there's the basis, you have been saved, past tense, through faith. That's the means. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So that no one may boast. Now the word saved here, as we look at these two verses, for by grace, God's unmerited favor, you have been saved. Paul means here justified. He's put it in the past tense, right? He means you've been declared righteous before God and forgiven of your sins. Because salvation has three tenses. You have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. Justification. Sanctification, glorification. Paul is talking about justification here. He's talking about that first initial aspect of our salvation. For by grace, you have been saved. It's passive. It happened to you. It's, it's in the past. And it happened dia through the means of faith, through the means of trust or belief or dependence upon God and his grace, not upon yourself. It, that's the means by which this Salvation is activated in your life. You're not a robot and you're not asleep and you're not unaware. You hear the gospel, understand the gospel, respond through faith. And then Paul says these very interesting words. And that, that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may may boast. So a little, get a little technical here for just a, a couple of moments. And I'll make it as simple as I, I can. I'm not a Greek scholar. I had Greek. I'm not a scholar by any stretch. But here's some things that I think will help you understand Ephesians 2, 8. 
In Greek, like other languages, there are different word endings to indicate if a word is masculine, feminine, or neuter, and therefore what it refers to in a sentence. Greek does not have sentence word order like English does. The word order is completely scrambled. It's random. The way you know what refers to what is the endings of each word. And so there's, in every language, there's masculine, feminine, and neuter. So in English, as an example, because our, our, our language is not like Greek in this sense, if we think of the words his, hers, and its, there's nothing about the endings of those words that indicate masculine, feminine, or neuter, right? They all end with the letter S. They all end the same. But we just know because English is different. We just know his is masculine, hers is feminine, its is neuter. For example, the word dog in English. If I say I have a dog, you don't know if it's a male dog or a female dog, right? The word for Greek, a dog, would tell you by the word itself because of how it ends, okay? So that's what we're talking about. So we go back to this verse. Look at the verse. This is very important. The word grace. There's three very important words here. Four. So the word grace and faith have a feminine ending. The words grace and faith are feminine. The word saved, the verb saved, is masculine. All right? So for by grace, feminine, you have been saved, masculine, through faith, feminine. Okay? And that, not of yourself. So the the key question here is the word that. The word that is neuter. It's not masculine like saved, and it's not feminine like grace and faith. It's neuter. So what does it refer to? See, if it was masculine, we would know for certain that referred to saved. It would refer to salvation. If it was feminine, we would know for certain that that refers back to grace and faith. But Paul put it in the neuter. And what it refers to then is the whole package. That refers to this. You are saved by grace through faith. It refers to the whole thing. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And that, the grace is not of yourselves, the salvation is not of yourselves, and the faith is not of yourselves. None of it is of yourselves. It's all the gift of God. That's what this verse is showing us. That's what this verse is teaching us. The point of this is only a single-handed salvation where we contribute nothing to our salvation eliminates all grounds, all grounds for boasting. For by grace, unmerited favor, you have been rescued through dependence on God and that, all of that is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not of the result of anything you've done. You see the so that for this purpose, so that no one may boast. So that no one may boast. We can illustrate it with a a story that is close to our hearts and our church family. Can illustrate it with the story of a heart transplant. If you're born with a genetic heart problem, as some are, your only solution in time for your genetic heart problem that got passed on to you from your ancestors, right? 
Well, there's so many spiritual parallels here. Your only solution is not eat better and exercise. It's not work, 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 work. It's not be healthy, don't do this, do this. You know, take it upon yourself. That's not your only solution. Your only solution is a transplant. And you think about that scenario. And the person that gets a new heart and a heart transplant, they didn't produce the new heart. They didn't provide the new heart. Someone had to die for them to get a new heart. They didn't install the new heart. They didn't connect the new heart. The surgeon didn't consult them, didn't seek their counsel or direction or input into how exactly this is going to happen. No, in fact, all that they brought to the table was their need. All that they brought to the table was their bad heart. This is my contribution to my heart transplant. I'll never forget when our dear sister Brandy told me they took her heart out at 37 years old and they set it on the table. A healthy heart is kind of spongy and resistance and it should have stood up. And they set her her bad heart, her old heart on the table and it just went. She was she was literally days away. It was that desperate. And she is a perfect example of what I'm talking about because not one time has she ever thought or done to praise herself for her heart transplant. (laughs) No, she's overflowing with praise to God, praising God for his provision of the surgeons and the nurses and the hospital and the technology and the and the donor. You see, the person that needs a heart transplant, trust God to provide that and trust the surgeons to install that without your contribution. It would be absurd to boast that there's simply no grounds for boasting. And this is how God designed salvation. This is how God designed the heart transplant of our spiritual hearts. So a little application. Do not congratulate someone for becoming a Christian. <laughs> I know our tendency, we do that. We're just so trained to, you know, big moments in life. People graduate or get married or job promotions or whatever. And we're just so inclined. Oh, congratulations. There is nothing appropriate about congratulating someone for becoming a Christian. Don't do it. Let's stop doing that. They're not graduating from high school. Okay. This is a heart transplant. God did it. We rejoice with them. We praise God with them. We're we're joyful. We're thankful. But we don't pat them on the back. All they contributed was a sin that made it necessary. If you want to congratulate them, congratulate them for being such a great sinner. (laughs) For being so sick that you saw your need for the physician. Related to that, don't ever boast in yourself for becoming a Christian. Oh, don't even ever think it. Don't ever say it. Don't ever think you did anything special in becoming a Christian. We learn from this passage and others as well that we could go look at that even faith and repentance are a gift from God to his elect at the moment of their regeneration. God makes us alive and we believe. And I can't tell the difference between when the first one of those happened and the second one. It's simultaneous in our perspective. 
God's perspective, they're dead. I make them alive and then they trust. And so even faith and even repentance are gifts from God. So don't ever boast in becoming a Christian. But you have to boast because we're hardwired to boast. So you want to boast, boast, boast in this, boast that God the Father chose you before the foundation of the world. Boast that God the Son redeemed you with his own blood at Calvary with you in mind. You got to boast. You want to boast? Boast in the Holy Spirit who gave you new life and a new heart when you couldn't lift a finger to do either. You see, it takes nothing other than the triune God to save one sinner. Father, Son, and Spirit going to work on our behalf. That brings us to reason number four. Speaking of work, God's work leads to our works. Reason number four, this is where it got challenging, but I think this, I think this is accurate. Scott, we'll discuss this in preacher's cohort this week. I think this is accurate. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Reason number four, because only a single-handed salvation results in good works. Only a single-handed salvation produces good works, guarantees good works, ordains good works. It's almost as if God's just sitting up there in heaven and he wants to look at his people and his whole goal with them is that they would produce good works that would glorify him. And he looks at Israel and it's failure, 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 failure. And God says, I got to do everything myself. (laughs) And so now I have ordained these good works For my people to walk in. You you see verse 10. It's not a new subject. It's more explanation. It begins with the word for. That's telling us that it's explaining this grace uh, based salvation through faith. That's not of ourselves a gift of God. So that no one may boast for we are his workmanship. His. It's still God. God the father still primary all the way through this. We are his handiwork. Literally. We are his output. He goes on. He says we are created in Christ Jesus. That means really recreated. That's not our physical creation. That's our spiritual creation. And God did this so that we would have good works. We're created for good works, not by good works. Right? He's already established that. We're not saved by good works. We're saved for good works. And God prepared these in eternity past so that we would live in them, so that we would do them, so that we would walk in them. A couple of observations here as we think about this verse. Look back in verse 1 and you'll notice, um, actually verse 2, that we formerly walked according to the course of this world. But now look what happens by the time we get to the end of the passage. Now we have good works that we are to what? Walk. So there's the transformation of the walk, the life, the behavior. I think the book ends this whole passage. Walk to walk. As I said earlier, it's for good works, not by good works. What's happening here in verse 10 is Paul has now moved from justification to our Christian life. He has moved to our sanctification, right? He's moved to the result of what's going to happen between your regeneration and your going to heaven. 
And what God sees in that time frame, no matter how long it is, that he wants you to live out and to walk in the good works that he's already established and laid out before you. That's what's going on here. Incredible. And it's only a salvation that is wrought by God that brings about these new works, these good works. We could say it this way if we think about Ephesians chapter 1. Because the same sovereign God who chose us before the foundation of the world at the same time prepared good works for us to do. Thus he ordained them. Thus he guaranteed them. He is going to get glory from his creation. He is going to be glorified by his people. And so he says, I must do everything myself. This is, this is Philippians 2, 12 and 13. What a great cross-reference to the passage Carson preached a few weeks ago. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. There it is. Those are, these, those two passages are like twins. Jesus said in John 3.21, he who practices the truth comes to the light. So that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. John 3.21, now he's talking about a believer. He comes to the light. He has good works. And those good works are made evident that these good works have been wrought in God. Who's doing it? God is doing it in us and through us. And they're works that he's already ordained. Can you relax this morning in the knowledge that God has good works tailor made for your life? Isn't that exciting? You don't have to come up with it. God has already come up with it. And they, they're custom made for just you, your life, your season of life, your station of life. We can relax in that. We don't have to strive in the flesh. We can just walk with God, walk in the spirit. And we know if I'm walking in the spirit, I'm going to be walking in these good works. Second thing we need to take to heart here is that just as we shouldn't boast in our salvation, we should never boast in our good works for God. There is no grounds for boasting here either. It's equally absurd to boast in your good works. Or to boast in someone else's good works. And to elevate them in a way that is inordinate and inappropriate. How, how could we possibly boast in our good works for God? They're all the result of being recreated in Christ Jesus. They're all the result of the vine flowing through the branches, reproducing his own fruit. It's the fruit of the spirit. It's not the fruit of Chris. My fruit is my fruit is verses one to three. That's that's what I do left to myself. That's that was my life before February 15th, 1986. That that described it. No, it's the fruit of the Spirit. How can we boast and it's His fruit? It's not even our fruit ultimately. It all comes through Jesus Christ. 
How can we boast in branches if Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing? And so much of Western American Christianity is boasting in branches. Now, we honor branches. We rejoice with branches. We thank branches. There's no place for boasting. So let me recap. Your spiritual death and rebellion against God produced a simmering sewer of sins, trespasses, disobedience, lusts, desires, and transgressions, making you loathsome to God and a child of wrath. Hashtag me too. But God, in His grace, love, mercy, and kindness, decisively intervened, made you alive, raised you up, seated you with Christ, never to be unseated, saved you from sin, death, and wrath, and saved you to a life of good works, so that for eternity, you're going to be like a well-lit, beautiful billboard in heaven, advertising to the angels and the company of the redeemed the glorious grace and kindness of our God. We're going to be like signs. God is love. God is kind. God's grace reached to even me. Billboards shining for His glory for all eternity. Can I say this morning, be consumed with this, not COVID. Can I say this morning, get caught up in this, not political news and depressing politics. Can I say to you, rejoice in this, not a return to sports. Can I say to you, teach your kids this, not how good they are. It's the world that's telling them how good they are. They need the truth. As we transition then to communion and invite the men who are going to serve us to make your way down. As we transition to communion. With your eye on verses 4 to 10. With your eye on verses 4 to 10 of Ephesians 2. I want to say to you this morning that all of this has been brought to you courtesy of the cross of Christ. It's all brought to us courtesy of the cross of Christ.